Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Ah, yes, here we are. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. Great to have you with us this week. Aaron Noonan here on the microphone. On the other microphone, Will Dale. Hello, Will. How you going? I'm doing super, and we are doing our classic car episode for this episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast. Great to sit down and go down memory lane with a car that had a very long life with a bunch of different specs and liveries and did all sorts of stuff along the way. And there's one going out, Mark Gibson, the GIO Commodore. They parked the Nissan this weekend and elected to run with the Commodore. Well, much of the attention during the week has surrounded rookie driver and former world motorcycle champion Wayne Gardner. The Graham Moore Commodore won't be a threat to the hot shots, but merely having Gardner here at Bathurst is an enormous attraction. Neil Crompton and the GIO Commodore and Mark Skate share the front row. Off the starting line, Crompton has won it and takes off. Second overall in the championship round, without doubt, his best ever performance in touring cars. He's a friend of ours too. Neil Crofton for the GIO team. So, Will, the car we are looking at today in our classic car rep is the GIO Commodore. Now, there's been a few GIO Commodores over the years of various specs and models, but the one we're looking at started the era for a major car constructor or chassis constructor in terms of their work with Commodores. We'll touch on that a bit later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a car that brought a world champion to Bathurst for the first time in a car. Mm-hmm. It's a car that took a good friend of ours to a breakthrough podium finish in his career. Mm. Cost him a couple of dollars to do it, but we will talk <laughs> about that in a moment. And it's a car that had a massively long lifespan across Group A, V8 supercars, the Konica series, uh, and some other miscellaneous racing along the way. It is probably the most raced car of the V8 supercar era overall. I was shocked when we went back and looked at the looked at our files on this car that it actually went for that long because its early history was in a really high with really high prominent teams, high prominent drivers. And it kept going. Mm. It just kept going. It kept coming back. It had a bit of a rest in the middle, but it kept coming back. (laughs) And even in the latter days of its career, as we'll get to, it had a few high profile moments of its own. Uh, Yes, in some way, shape, or form. So the car we are talking about is Dencar 1, the very first Dencar Commodore. When we say Dencar, uh, it is the chassis company that was uh, created originally with Dennis Watson, who was joined by, by George Smith, who'd both worked for Brock over the years. Georgie's been with Moffat and Bond over the years as well. They got together in late 1990 for 1991, and they went and did a deal with Wynn Percy for the Holden Racing Team to do fabrication work for Wynn with the new VN Group A Commodores that were coming along. But the first HRT car was actually Dencar 2. Dencar 1 was the GIO Commodore VN Group A that was bought by Bob Forbes and raced by uh, Mark Gibbs that later became a VP, VR, VS. It had a, a whole bunch of different lives that we'll talk about on the pod. But it was at a time when Commodore had not been the car to win in Group A. It was the car of choice for privateers because of its cost and its availability uh, up against the turbo cars that were expensive and, and high tech. 
and Bob Forbes' team was one of those. I mean, they'd had a few VL Commodores over the journey. This VN, though, was their first, uh, it was the first VN. In fact, before the VN debuted as a touring car in 1991, I think this car was on display at the Sydney Motor Show at the end mm. of 1990. Obviously, not fully finished and complete, but pretty damn well close to. And, and it's that red GIO livery that was on the Nissan, of course, later the next year, stood out. It looked fantastic, clean. Uh, very simple, clear cut, minimal other sponsors and signage. The G- if you say the GIO cars today, race fans know what you mean. It's funny because you associate red with being very much a Holden colour, but there weren't very many red Commodores no, on the grid that Not back even then. the factory cars were no. red. They were black and white. Absolutely. And it's funny to think that it was essentially a privateer team that was that was a very early adopter for the brand new Commodore. But of course the VN had been been in gestation for an extended period of time. The VL TWR Walkinshaw, the VL the um Group A fuel injected car was not meant to race as long as it did. The van was meant to be introduced in early to mid nineteen ninety. Then there were hom- homologation well, delays. Well, the van had been a road car since eighty eight. Exactly. Yeah. So it took a while to get to the racetrack in terms of touring car mm. uh, competition. And over the journey, there weren't many VN Commodores no, built. There no. were barely any. If you could count them on nearly. Well, let's do it on two hands. There's this car that we're focusing on on our classic car episode today, the the GIO car. HRT built a total of three VNs in that 91 season. They all went on to be VPs and other things later on. So that's four. Uh, Larry Perkins' team built five VNs. That brings us to a total of nine. Uh, Terry Finnegan built a car. Ten. The Food Town Blue car. That's ten. Oh, I'm running out. Yeah, I'm hard-pressed to think of too many more. I can't think of any more. Not off the top of my head anyway. Because, of course, the Bob Forbes product car was a Perkins build car, as was yep. Alf Barbagallo's Castrol yep. car. Uh, of course, there were the mobile cars. There was the Tommy Sahado car, which, <laughs> by the way, are in uh-uh. the new Perkins Engineering Car History book. We are going through sending out pre-orders this week. Bookstock has arrived. If you've already pre-ordered, it'll be on its way soon, so check your email for tracking numbers and and, de- and the like. Uh, we have sold out nearly all of this book. We don't have many left, a couple of hundred of 2,500 left, which is a phenomenal uh, a take-up rate from the pre-order period. So if you haven't ordered yet, I've got to tell you now, Get in or you'll miss out. Bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Yeah, not many VNs. This was one of them. And, of course, they didn't start the season with this car, the Bob Forbes team. Mark Gibbs, of course, was their driver. He'd been driving for for Bob for a couple of years in the VL Commodores uh, before this. But they started with the VL. They didn't have a VN racing in that first round at Sandown in 91. The two mobile cars were there for Brock and Perkins. The Win Percy HRT car was there, but it took a little bit longer for this car to make its debut. In fact, it didn't start in a touring car round. It debuted in an Amps car round at Amaru with Gibbs at the wheel. Of course, Forbes' team was a Sydney-based team, so it made sense that they would run the Amps car series, and they did quite a bit around that time. So April 1991 is when this car kicked off. So it's it's thirty. It's just over yeah. 30 years ago. Here we are still talking about it, and it's actually... Uh, it's dubbed in our records as RF04. You might be thinking, RF, it's not what the race team was called. Robert Forbes. Yes, Bob it makes Forbes. total sense yeah, when, you, total when sense. you think about and it. And they yeah. had three VL Group A uh, SV Walkinshaw models prior to that. So this hmm. was the fourth Commodore. Of course, that, that he and his team over the years had all sorts of different cars. But in terms of the, the Holden Group A Commodores, this was the fourth one, hence why... It was what it was. But the funny thing is they finally wheel out this new car. They take it to the track. They go racing with it. 
and then they pretty much bench it straight away <laughs> because they go and buy an Nissan GTR. Well, that's the thing. In 1991, it became very obvious very quickly that if you wanted to run near the front of the field or even or even hopefully win stuff, the Nissan GTR was the car to have. So, yeah, Bob Forbes went and did a deal with Fred Gibson and bought the only customer Nissan GTR built by the team. Yeah, one of five. There were five mm. built overall. That was the only customer car. And it debuted in the GIO team's hands later the year. I think it was Oran Park at the Touring Car Round, the final round of the Shell Australian Touring Car Championship in, in that season. Mm. So it's a very strange scenario where you have this car that you've developed and that you've built and that you've raced. It's basically new. It's, like, it's, it's still pretty fresh. Yeah. And then you basically park it because, of course, the, the Nissan at, well, I'm guessing, about half a million dollars back in those days, which big money and particularly the now. Yeah. yeah, and the rest. Uh, and, of course, that car was run and serviced by Gibsons in between rounds. It was mm. crewed by the, the Forbes team on the race weekends, but it was very much a Gibson prep car. And this Commodore that we're talking about has the Gibson tie-up come in a little bit later on. The Gibson-Forbes relationship was very close for a while. Obviously, it's no longer. It all turned yeah. to muck through the whole Craig Lowndes and Double O Motorsport and court case and, and everything that went on there. But isn't it strange that you've, you've gone and got this car, got it up and running, uh, but you just park it virtually straight away. <laughs> but when you see what replaced it, it kind of makes sense as to why and how. However, that car, a lot of people forget, went to Bathurst as the backup for the mm. Nissan GIO GTR in 91, although it didn't make it to the grid. No, it did appear on track, and it was actually entered as the second product entry, yeah. un under a second product entry for- Still with the, the GIO base colours, but mm. with product stickers. Yeah, some it. bright flashes of yellow, of fluoro yellow for, um, was it Bruce Stewart or Darren Stewart? Darren Stewart, and Bruce's Bob son, and, and Bob Tindall. Yeah, 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 but it, it failed on the warm-up lap. So, mm. and in those days, cross-entering was permitted whereby you could nominate your drivers in the one team across multiple cars, mm. which- Which is how Mark Scaife set the fastest lap of the race in the number two correct. Nissan GTR, not the number one car that he won in. Exactly. So, he holds a place in Bathurst history that will never be beaten to win the race in one car and set the fastest lap of the race in the other <laughs> car. But yeah. then this scenario set off a, a situation that never was seen before or since- and it didn't happen in the day on the day because the drivers didn't need to jump ship. Whenever cross entering occurred with teams previously, it was within the team who ran the same sorts of cars. Mm. Of course, Peter Brock famously jumped cars twice, won Bathurst twice. Yep. Boy, that still cops hate on socials. It's unbelievable people how feel very strongly about it. Yeah, it winds people up. But the reality is. He wasn't the only one to do it. Lots of other people did it. He wasn't even it. the first one to do it. They Alan Moffat They just didn't win the race. one of the first. Yeah, he did it in 1980. Yeah. Now, he jumped Ford to Ford, his mm. car to the Bob Morris, Bob Morris Bill O'Brien car. Yeah. Over the years, the ANZ Sierra drivers swapped between the Peter Jackson Sierra drivers, the factory Toyota Corollas, Dick Johnson. They were all the same type of car. So this would have been the only time that had Gibson Onslow's Nissan Crapped itself, mm, which it did late in the race, which but it was made struggling it to the and coughing and spluttering its way around to finish third. The, had they jumped, they would have jumped into a completely different type of car, brand, model, make, everything. So strange, so strange, and and yet there are people who miss cross entering. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's that many. <laughs> no, it's a very quietly. small minority. It's, it's a small, not even very vocal. It's a small enthusiast base. Yeah. I reckon. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tech.
Supercars unforgettable. Of course, the Nissan won the Sandown 500 and mm. they finished third, the GIO car. So this car, the Commodore, was parked up. And, of course, there was a big brouhaha about in 92 about what the weights of the Nissans and the the restrictions that have been put on the car. Well, of course, so- because it, on race day at Bathurst in 91, Holden, Ford, Channel 7 and Shell had basically put out a, put a gun to Cam's head and said, look, you're changing the rules for touring car racing or we're all leaving. So, very soon after that, the rules cha- were brand new rules were going to be introduced for 1993, Holden versus Ford V8-powered sedans. So, 1992 became kind of an interim year where they tried to play with all the weights and play with um, rev limits across all the cars to try and achieve some level of parity, which each team, in particular the Nissan team, tried Fudged to- Fudge def- the shit out yes. of. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. I-, I wanted to see how you were going to say it, but I figured you weren't going to say it like no, that. No, I wasn't. So, so yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. no, you put it very accurately. Well, meanwhile, while all this is going on in 1992, so, of course, the factory cars are now Winfield. The mm-hmm. GIO cars continued to be raced by Mark Gibbs- on Dunlops as opposed to the Yokohamas of the um, factory that was the major, cars. Yeah, that was the major difference between them, wasn't it? That was that was definitely the major difference. But this Commodore's still here. Mm. It's still hanging around. It's mm. still there just in mothballs ready and waiting if required. It's kind of like the netball here if you need, here if yeah. you need, pass to me. <laughs> and that car underwent a huge re-engineering project in 1992. Um, Morris Risman, who um, had worked on so many race cars over the years, they basically actually, I think there's photos still. If you go to the Raider Motorsport uh, website, I think there's some photos online of the um, the work that went on that car in '92. Massive re-engineering project. At that point, the red interior, of course, the GIO red, was changed to silver. And remember, this car raced as a silver Commodore in the hands of Rowan Onslow in the Amps car series, the Chicago Pneumatics livery. Yeah, correct. Which yeah. a lot of people would completely forget because. By that stage, the Amps car series was waning a little bit. The, mm. the fields had shrunk to, you know, 9, 10, 11 cars. Good quality, though. And Amps, we should do an Amps car pod at another stage. Agreed. It was the, yeah. the touring car series within the series kind of thing. In 92, the Nissan GDRs were constantly there, the two factory cars and the GIO car. Uh, Tony Longhurst regularly took a fleet to BMWs. Paul Morris was on the scene by that stage. Bondi was a local with his Caltech Sierra, and you threw in like Bob Pearson, the Lansvale boys, Terry maybe Finnegan. Terry Finnegan, and, and a bunch of Corollas. Good, yeah, <laughs> and a few back. Corollas here and there, and maybe the odd 635 BMW that was still <laughs> lurking. Uh, thank you to the Golsons. Yes. Uh, you know, 10, 12 cars, 92's Amps car series was still pretty good for, hmm. for in terms of racing, but it was. You know, depending and they were on what- smart enough to put on a race as well. Yeah, that's the- right. Yeah. And depending on what market you were in, uh, it was when you, what time you saw it. Obviously, in Victoria, we would see those at ten thirty at night, and whereas yeah. in Queensland, we'd see them just before the six o'clock news. Damn you, will damn <laughs> you, and and Sydney siders would have been the same to to see it locally. So. Uh, and like the Amps car series only went one more year after that. But this car lives on in the rebirth of Amps car later on down the track. So come 1992, there's this big brouhaha over the weight that's been put in the Nissans. Fred Gibson threatens court action. There's umming and ahhing about what's going to happen. In the end, the Nissans all ran. Yeah, basically saying it was unsafe for them to run at such a high weight. Correct. And this Commodore still lurking. It's still here. It's still hanging around. And- we end up seeing, as all of this is playing out during the course of 1992, 
Wayne Gardner retires from motorcycle racing. 92 was his last season in the World mm. Championship with the, the Rothmans Honda team. And he started to do a little bit of touring car stuff yeah. overseas. He raced um, a Jägermeister M3 as a teammate to his good mate Armin Hahn in the DTM. Exactly. So Gardner is out of bikes getting into cars. Bathurst is coming. Mm. And I tell you what. The deal, man, the deal man of all deal mans, <laughs> Graham Moore, who put yeah. together the Williams Renault thing a few years later with Super Touring and all sorts of sponsorships over the years, gets Wayne Gardner into this car for Bathurst with Strathfield Car Radio's backing, who he'd been involved with previously when he ran with Tony Noski about four years earlier. Mm. And Wayne Gardner comes to Bathurst and drives this very car. So the car that didn't start the race in 91 as the kind of backup car. Now uh, has the most famous driver now, in the field. In now it. has the most 92. famous Bathurst 1000 rookie in the field in uh, 1992 on board. So fair to say it's gone from the shithouse to the penthouse in terms of <laughs> exposure levels between uh, what it got in 91 and what it got in 92. Now, Strathfield Car Radio has definitely got value for money that year, I feel. Um to be fair, it was it was a smart move by Gardner to because there were reports that he was trying to he and Armin Hahn were potentially going to be in a second Perkins Engineering car, which had an entry, year, which had an entry. Um, but in the end, pairing with Graham Moore, it was a combination that, with all due respect, wasn't a wasn't an outright contender to win. So it lowered ex- expectations on Wayne as to what he was going to do. It was a good le- good way to experience. In theory, it was a good way to learn and experience Mount Panorama in a touring car until the weather turned on Sunday. I was about to say. And then he looked at the weather radar. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it was messy. It was not nice that day at all. Uh, Of course, the 92 race is famous for Jim Richards' crowd assessment at the end of the day. I think that's Mm. a nice way to put it. Yeah. I'm trying to clean things up after dropping um, a bit of a terrible line earlier on, so I'm just trying to make it sound nice (laughs) from here on in. But he called them a pack of arseholes. If you haven't seen The Vision, you should probably go back and- If you haven't seen The Vision- Check it out. I'm not sure what rock you've been under, but um, it must have been a big rock, that's for sure. But And it was the right, definitely the right way to go. To make your debut, there's no expectation when you're driving a privateer car because if you go well, that's a bonus. People yeah. look at you and go, oh, how good have you gone? Mm. And if you don't go that well, you go, well, it wasn't going to go very good anyway. You're still learning. It's an old car. It's a, not a full-time team, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. And it worked out in a good situation. Of course, he ends up full-time with the Holden Racing Team the next year, which I think a lot of people even at that stage couldn't have imagined as being possible. Uh, Graham Moore ran that car at the Adelaide Grand Prix to round off the year. Of course, that was the farewell to Group A in Australia. Mm. That was the last Group A uh, as we knew it. Uh, of course, the 92 Group A was Australianised Group A, I, yes. I guess you would say with those. Well, um, the VN shouldn't have been, wasn't actually eligible for international Group A because 500 of them were never built. 302, I think, was the number yeah. of thereabouts, and it was kind of a near enough, good enough, go on on you go on your way, scallywag, yeah. just get it so out So it was there. all right in Australia and, I guess, New Zealand, but, yeah. Internationally, yeah. it was not a thing. No, but I tell you what was a thing for 93 five-litre racing. The mm-hmm. new V8 touring car rulebook that you mentioned earlier came into being. And, of course, for the factory Nissan team, it meant they couldn't be factory Nissans anymore. No. They had to pick a side. And a lot of people thought Fred Gibson would go with Ford, given he had been a factory driver with Alan Moffat and Bo one Seaton. Bathurst in a one Bathurst with the, with the Fox, Harry Firth in 67. Uh, but went Holden. Uh, did a deal with Holden, and obviously they were building up a couple of cars that were very much kit cars for 93. So when you're building new cars, but you don't have a car yet built to go testing with over summer, what do you do? 
You use this car. <laughs> you borrow this one from your mates at Forbes's. So Scaife, uh, particularly Scaife, he used to do all the testing back in those days for for Gibsons. Yeah, Jimmy wasn't a big fan of testing, was not he? Not in the Gardner era, not no. in the Gibson era. It was kind of he got in and drove them when it mattered on on race weekends. So Mark Scaife took over this car on various days and drove it as something of a test mule for the Winfield team's cars. But don't forget, it still had the Holden V8 engine, not the Chevy engine at this point. Mm. But so then, the, so there again, the Gibson and Forbes link stays. So. Although Forbes had brought on the Nissan in 91, this Commodore just kind of kept lurking around. <laughs> so, But it was a smart idea to have it around because the rules changed. Didn't have to go and build a brand new car, yeah. which they did do later in 93. Mm. But here was this car virtually ready to go. And there wasn't really anything else you were going to do with a VN Group A in that era or in 91, 92 anyway because the-, the um the what's the word I'm looking for here? The recession we had to have kind of <laughs> sapped the field of privateer entries. So mm. you really there wasn't really anyone you were going to sell that car to. So you might as well hang on to it. And yeah. when it became obvious what was going to happen for 1993, well, a shell's a shell. It's already built up as a race car, and the V N to VP conversion, as we know, not a big step. Not a big step. No, not a big step. And at this point for 1993, Mark Gibbs was out of the driver's seat. Um, I think he had business commitments. I think he had mm. more stuff going on as well. But anyway, the the flow out of it all was that Neil Crompton picked up the drive in, in the GIO Bob Forbes car. So a guy who had, funnily enough, driven for Fred Gibson at Bathurst the previous <laughs> year in the number two Winfield car, uh, found his way back into uh, a full-time touring car ride. Having He'd been with Brock the previous year, but that all fell apart with Advantage Racing after four rounds, and they ran out of cashola. And um, Crumpo found himself back in a, in a, in a car in the, the GIO team. And, of course, that year it developed quite nicely because Wally Story came on board. He left the Holden mm. Racing team and headed there. They had a really good team. So they were in Monovale up in Sydney, and apologies to the Sydney siders who I massacred the names of your suburbs but I challenge any Sydneyite to say Paran when they read it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, they had a good little team, good little team of people. Peter Harker was there who was with the Holden Motorsport for a very long time and had been with HRT prior to that. So they had a, a good little crew of guys. So for Crompo, this was a great opportunity to, to jump in and get his way back behind the wheel and, and get in and among it at a time when the V8 touring car formula was starting to put a bit of fuel in the fire underneath it all and we got good crowds and – Channel 7 were obviously massively behind it. But as Crompo describes in his new book, which, by the way, is available now, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au, there's two really great stories he tells in this book, and they both come from racing this car in <laughs> 1993. I won't go into the specifics because you, you should really read the book. It's a cracker. They are good. Yeah. But Wayne Gardner <laughs> got him at Amaru, absolutely drilled him one, and he saved it up and he saved it up and he saved it up and he got him back later in the year at Barbagallo in the rain. What, what do they say? Revenge is a dish best served cold? It was very cold that day. It was very wet that day. Uh, but he got him. He absolutely got him. And I think at the time he got fined, Crompton, a thousand bucks. And while <laughs> doing the book with him, he says, the best thousand I ever spent. And, and, and then there's a really funny uh, side to all of this of how he then picked up the drive with. Wayne Gardner the next year who bought the team he'd been driving for, uh, the Bob Forbes team. That's a whole other story. you got to buy the book. It's a, look, 
I know I'm biased because I worked with Neil on it, but there's a bunch of stories in there, including these ones I think you'll enjoy. And the other incident in the GIO Commodore in 93 that uh, that's in the book and it's a corker is when he and Larry Perkins had a major misunderstanding, I think that's one way to put it, at Winton <laughs> that year where yeah. basically they had been belting, Larry had been morse coding the back at Neil. Neil fried a short circuit and it blew and it short circuited bad. <laughs> and in the end, they both ended up off in the boonies and um, uh, dealt with themselves at the steward's office before they even got there. So uh, it, that's a pretty good story in the book. But you've got one too that you enjoy from that year from that car that a lot of people probably forget as well. We talked about Amp's car before because it's a bit off the radar from people, but there's one that you, you still snigger every time we mention this one. <laughs> so, the 93 Amps car series, which was the last Amps car series in the original run, um, the lead car the lead car entries for it came from the Gibson team, the Bob Forbes team, so Crompton in this car, and the BMW M3s of Tony Longhurst and Paul Morris. Now, of course, armed with the new high downforce VP Commodore Crompton, Crompton was very fast in this car. Was it pole position or on- he was definitely on the front row for the race that I'm thinking of? Ma- uh, might front, even have front been pole. Row, but I think it might have been pole. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, his front row advantage didn't quite translate to the opening race where he was accused or at least found to have jumped the start. And he was not very happy about it, as he explained on race cam during the race to, the co- to Mike Raymond and the commentary team. And Crompton peels off into the pits. Yes, I tell you what, I think it's a stop-and-go penalty for an infringement of the start. Well, I tell you what, we have got the world's... Let's go down to Andy. Yes, you're exactly right, Mike. Neil Crompton to crept on the start. As you just saw, he was not too happy about the stop-go penalties back out on the track. Neil Crompton coming back through the field after a stop-and-go penalty. Neil, I would think, and all of us agree, that was a pretty harsh decision. That was absolutely disgraceful, Mike. I don't know what I'm even doing out here. We should just pack the whole show up and go home. Well, I don't blame you, Neil. I think it was a savage attack, and uh, unfortunately, as you know, you can't appeal it. The judge of fact uh, on the start line, he can do what he wants, and if we don't smarten this standard up pretty soon, uh, there's going to be a lot of people revolting. Well, that's right. Well, they're revolting people, so... uh... (laughs) What can I say? I mean, I'm trying not to blow my cool here and say things I shouldn't say. I'm trying to get on with the job. But uh, I know when I jump a start, Alan, I'm sure you know the feeling. Exactly. The, the light turned green, I started the motor car. The fact that the rest of them were asleep is not my problem. So a little fired up there, Uncle <laughs> Neil, just quietly, just a little bit. Very close to blowing another fuse. Uh, how big was his fuse box? <laughs> how many fuses were there to blow there? Uh, uh, not happy. No, not happy. no. But you know what? I watched the tape again. He definitely he moved. <laughs> he rolled. He definitely rolled. Yeah. Oh, I'm <laughs> the sure. Judge we'll, of fact uh, was not wrong in this instance, unfortunately. No, uh, I'm sure we'll. Uh, I'm sure we'll get a reply from him on that one. But uh, <laughs> oh, that's all right. He doesn't listen to podcasts. Remember. That's right. He yeah, did tell us fine. that. Yeah, he's, he's, he, you know what? He's not on socials. He's just not really interested. He's a busy man. I think we can say what we like and we should get away with it. It should be fine. It should be fine. So when Neil wasn't uh, having a run-in with Wayne Gardner, Larry Perkins, uh, the starter at Amaru, otherwise uh, interesting year, uh, 93. But the thing was, too, that car was clearly overweight by that Mm. stage. It still had the Holden V8 engine, whereby everyone else bar Larry Perkins had gone to the Chev. 
Even Winfield with their new cars had rolled out with Chevs. Uh, Peter Brock was with Chev with Advantage Racing. The HRT cars obviously had the new Chev. Privateers stuck with the Holden in pretty much all occasions. And the GIO team did as well. But they put together another car that debuted at Oran Park in the touring car round with a Chev engine. And that was a really nice car at the time. It's the car that Neil led the Sandown 500 in uh, in September that year. But the Holden-powered car that we're talking about did run at Oran Park. Mark Gibbs came back and drove it as car number four uh, as a bit of a get-your-eye-in-before-coming-and-doing-the-enduros-as-Neil's co-driver. Mm. But then it was sold. It was actually sold to Stuart McColl, the privateer, who had been running an ex-Bob Forbes VL. <laughs> so uh, he went to Bathurst with Peter Gazzard in 93, and it stayed in the GIO livery, mm. albeit uh, it wasn't... Um, you, you know, it wasn't the primary car. It was no. the Crompton Gibbs car was was definitely the, the primary. Uh, he ran the Adelaide Grand Prix in it, and then the next year brought back some familiar Kalari colours. Remember that it ran in the Kalari Transport colours in 94? Yeah, it was a good-looking livery, the sort orange the and orange yellow. Orange and yellow, yeah, yeah. That, that stood out. Uh, again, drove it in quite a few touring car rounds that year. Gazade co-drove at Bathurst. And then this car went on this weird little period of... Not getting to a racetrack. Well, a, gap, a couple, couple of, of years. Yeah, a gap year period is yeah. probably the best way to describe it. So Peter McLeod bought this car as well as the Brad Jones Craig Lowndes 94 HRT Bathurst running up, runner-up car, running up, runner-up running car, up. you know what I mean? Yeah. Took the mechanicals from this Perk X uh, GIO car and put them into the HRT shell. No, mm. didn't work. Totally didn't work. Yeah. Just it's kind of like round peg square hole type stuff. Just the it was all the HRT old, yeah. and Harrop gear went out the door. Sort of some PE gear and some GIO gear and some whatever. It wasn't an era where where I guess even now things aren't di- necessarily directly interchangeable between different manufacturers of the same car. But it's a lot closer and easier than it is than it was back then. Oh yeah, where hey, there was a lot more freedom in what you could do and how you could build things. Yeah, and, and in Peter's words, when I spoke to him about this some time, it was a total disaster. It just the HRT card never worked with those bits in it, and oh, just it didn't work. But what happened to this car that we're talking about, the XGIO? VNVP. So by this stage, it's still a VP. Mm. Um, John Henderson, remember the, the, the policeman who raced yeah. some years later in Super Touring? He ran a, a Vectra. Um, he was looking to get into the V8 touring car side of things. Of course, this is before it wasn't called V8 Supercars at this no. point in, in 1995. Group A touring cars. Five, five litres, V8s, Group A, whatever you want to call mm. it. It had a few different names. So from what I remember in 95, they put a new floor in this thing. They. Um, changed the roll cage, went to a back total re- bare shell rebuild on this car. But remained a VP. Stayed in VP gear, even though VR was new for 95, mm. body kit-wise. And I think they were going to run a Chev in it from that point. But it never made it to a track to race in 95 or 96. Mm. And then Richard Mork got his hands on it for 1997. Yes, the Morkmobile. And I reckon there's two things that stand out to me from 97. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure at that period it had a four-speed gearbox. Excellent. And which That's would make unusual. it the only V8 supercar with a four-speed. And when he ran the Shell Australian Touring Car around at Eastern Creek in 97, the signage on his car had the ARDC AMS car series on the car, <laughs> the rival series that was being run for privateers. So as we talked about before, this car's got some nice AMS car links. 
Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. Mm. So at the end of 93, the 94 Amps Car Series was canned. Yeah, it was meant to be- It was meant to end up being just one round at Amaru. Which Stephen Johnson was apparently going to run in the Fuddruckers for, mm. but that all fell apart. Yes. So the Amps Car Series went on the shelf for a few years, but the ARDC brought it back in 97 with a Goodyear control tyre aimed at uh, privateer touring car teams, of course. Mm. The V8 supercar era had begun. Tony Cochran and IMG were involved. The ARDC were the traditional custodians of the Bathurst 1000. There was plenty of politics. This is for the Amps car pod another time yeah. <laughs> down the track. But basically, there was a scenario whereby the first round of the Amps car series in 97 was canned at Amaru because there was a big brouhaha over the rev limiters being used and that they weren't approved rev limiters or mm. that they weren't the ones they should be having. So they turned it into a ride um, day rather than an actual race event. I think actually uh, Robbie Farr was going for a ride with Jeff Kendrick in a HRT car or ex-HRT car and they <laughs> rolled it going up the hill. Jeez. That's a whole other story for another day. <laughs> so anyway, fast forward later in the year, Richard Mork, plain white, number 77 Commodore with the ARDC Amps Car Series <laughs> on the side of it. That's kind of like, I'm trying to think of a um, comparative scenario, but it's kind of like- um, you may, as well, you may as well have just put Toka Super Touring on the side of the thing at the time. <laughs> it's a bit like putting, you know, sponsoring a supercar with a TCR banner yeah. for an upcoming event or something. It's a bit along those lines. But Cheeky bit of guerrilla advertising. Yeah, but um, didn't have to peel the stickers off. It's not like the year. Remember that there was a year at Bathurst maybe five, six years ago when it was still on Channel uh, must have been Channel 7 era, so it would at least be 2014 or 13 or somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Grant Denyer raced an Aussie race car with Family Feud sponsorship. Oh, yeah, I do remember this. And yeah. that caused a bit of a brouhaha over, you know, what could be shown and what wouldn't be shown and how it would be shown. Not like the good old days of- um, Channel 9, Kevin yeah, Camaro. Yeah. <laughs> <Kevin> <laughs> Camaro. The Kevin Camaro. Exactly. Uh, so, anyway, so Richard, they're the things that stick out for me with Morky, and he ratted in that Ames car series and popped up at uh, the Eastern Creek Touring Car Round and then appeared the following year in a purple and yellow livery, never before seen or never since. Distinctive. Stood you out. didn't miss it. Mm. Yeah, that's one way to put it. <laughs> it definitely- I didn't, I didn't mind the liveries that this car ran in in Morky's era. They're always bright, colourful, something very different. That's one way to put it. Yeah, they, they definitely stood out. But then remember that that year Sandown 500 was really wet. Mm. It started dry and it got wet later on. It was quite bad. Yeah. And that car got absolutely pulverised at the end of the main straight in an incident. Um, I can't even remember who hit the back of it. Maybe it was the Greg Creek Ericsson car. Someone drilled it. Because of the visibility being so poor, mm. it got absolutely smashed. He was sharing it with Bill Cedars, the super truck driver who did a fair bit of touring car racing around that time in V8s. So for Bathurst to fix the car- they thought, well, while we're at it, we'll update it. So it went from VP, finally got to VR <laughs> three years after the VR model was permitted in the category. And after the VR model had been superseded by the VS. Yeah, it's only a small little And the VT tweak. was already on the grid. It was. <laughs> it was. 
And I think if memory serves correct, the weather that day and the accidents that went on that day, including this one, uh, from there the rain lights were introduced on V8 supercars, mm. which obviously were much easier to see rather than just the regular brake lights on those cars. So uh, this car did help, I guess, develop a, some element of safety in V8 supercar go. racing. But really, when you strip it all down and you mm. go back through all the things that we've talked about with this car, its starring role, its bannerhead achievement is being one of the stars of the In the Pits documentary that aired on ABC, <laughs> surely. How good was that documentary? We still we still see people talking about it now, commenting on our Facebook page and socials. Yeah. We we love it as well. Like it, it's, 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 it's a, a different really, era. It's, it's, it's amazing to see- how much has changed in that, what, 22 years or whatever it's been? And so entirely unfiltered. The fact that you could have a camera sitting with Larry Perkins outside a steward's hearing or <laughs> as as he's cre- creeping up to the door to try and listen and to hear what they're saying <laughs> or having a camera with Larry um, as he's having a very um, robust oh, discussion with, John with, John Sh- <laughs> with Chief Scrutiny, John Shepard, or Category Technical Officer, I should say, John Shepard. That's Shepherd. right, it was too, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you had Chris Smurden. Ah, yes, Captain Dick around. That's right, uh, which is mentioned in our Perkins Engineering car book, by the way. And, uh, of course, they followed Richard Bork for a time. And yes. the, the level of battler getting that car on the track was evident mm. in that uh, doco, for sure, which which followed. If you're not across it, it was 1999, I think it was, the yes. year. It was a documentary that was made following um, – and Melinda Price was featured in it as well. Yep. Um, V8 supercar racing of the era, following Perkins, Smyrden, Melinda. Following a cross-section of different teams. Pro, yeah. female racer, businessman racer in Smyrden and Battler. Absolute privateer. Absolute yeah. privateer, Morky. So uh, I think it's about a 90-minute duration. It's probably available still on a DVD via eBay somewhere or here, there or somewhere. Probably should be something that we could convince the ABC to air on I, uh, iView or something somewhere, sure. somehow, sometime. Yeah. Uh, it's very stark, but it but the the standout line in that documentary is Larry Perkins. Oh, which one? No, no, there's one. <laughs> there, there is there's one. There's one only. that gets remembered when, and also gets butchered. It, it as is. We found it out is. Whilst researching the book, yes. So the Nathan Pretty Commodore hearing the hitting the top of the mountain wall, the yellow privateer car. Yeah. When Larry's sitting there, and I think he might be with Jack or he's with Oscar Fioranotto, and he looks across and he goes, "Young bloke, cold tires, beft up." But is yep. that that's how I always remember it. That's how I always remember it too. But, but when it's we not went quite right. No, when we went back and looked at the book, and I'm gonna have to Should we ref- just play the audio for the listeners? Yeah, let's just play it. This is what he said on the doco as he watched the car hit the wall. Young bloke, cold tires, fuck up. Close. Yeah, it's like how everyone misremembers Crocodile Dundee's inf- immortal line. Exactly. Yeah, that's not a knife. That yeah. What is the line again? That's ne- not a knife. This ne- is a knife. That's what everyone thinks. Yeah. But the line is, now that's a knife. Yeah. As he pulls, See, pulls it, his out. Isn't it yeah. funny how history slightly tweaks things? Yeah. We all just remember it how we like to remember it best or remember it easiest. Anyway. So, the In the Pits doco is um, where this car starred really over time. And then this livery, it sort of morphed. It, it morphed a little bit, I guess you would say. So that it became a multicolored car running under the V8 Racing banner. 
Uh, it ran Bathurst in 98, uh, 99. I think Christian DeGostin was the co-driver mm. of the year that the doco was yeah. being filmed. No, 99 retired with, I think, a broken rocker, if I remember, from the doco. 98 retired. Oh, t- tell me about 98. This was great. So, I don't remember exactly what happened to the Mork car on track. I think it, bro- it, it broke down towed. or something. Yeah, but it, it got towed to Park Fermo. Which was meant it's out of the race. Yes. Except the car, there was nothing wrong with the car. It shouldn't, and according- This is a bit like Tim Slade at Adelaide 500 a few years ago where they put him on the truck and he would say, no, 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 I'm fine. Leave me alone. <laughs> leave me alone. I just want to get going again. Except Slade, he didn't proceed to do a burnout in part when he got, when the car got back to Park Ferme like <laughs> Richard Mork did to illustrate the fact that the car was perfectly fine and capable of running. That's one way to prove it. So- he, of course, couldn't rejoin the race. Was prevented from rejoining the race because the car was in Park Ferme. Can't, can't emerge Point of no return. Point of no return. Point. Yep. However, he did lodge a formal protest against that. And in the end, the event organisers, who were IMG at the time, were fined $10,000 by CAMS for incorrectly transporting the car to Park Ferme when the car was in a drivable con- condition. A uh, front spring had collapsed. That was what the issue. The car was drivable and could have made it back under its own power or was easily repairable. (laughs) So, let me recap this car's Bathurst history. Warm-up lap non-starter 91. (laughs) Low. 92, world champion motorcycle hero arrives. High. 93, privateer run, has a bit of a delayed run off the radar. Low. Got a lot of airtime by coming into the pits It did. Yeah. Uh, Stuart McCall had a pretty good run. I think they finished in 94 here in Gazard, uh, 10th to 15th, somewhere in that had a reasonable run, yeah. That period. Then it doesn't run at all at Bathurst for a few years. Low. Uh, very low. Yes. Uh, flat line. 98 returns, but returns. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's the- got a bit of everything, this car. That's why we picked it, because it's got so many things to talk about. In, a, in our database, in the AN1 data database, this car is unique specifically for this race as having- Bathurst 1990, FIA 1000 Classic 1998, Car 77, did not finish, reason, other, brackets, organiser error. <laughs> we've got a few interesting, we've got a few interesting ones in the database. I think that's the years, only but one that's, that's, good, that's that one. Yeah, that one's unique. That is very, very unique. Now, speaking of unique, there is the doco of 99, then we go to Bathurst in 2000. So, in 2000, the Konica V8 Light Series began the second tier um, category for supercars. So, Craig Bastion, who'd been a Formula Holden driver, leased this car for a round before he ended up getting a car of his own. Uh, and Mork raced at Bathurst with Steve Williams. And Steve Williams had driven with Terry Finnegan in the 80s, so hmm. he'd been around a very long time. And it was like in the Laser Series when Mark Scaife yeah, was coming was. through. Yeah, true. Very true. But Bathurst 2000... That was my first Bathurst as a full-time journalist, Motorsport News Magazine. Rained for like a week before and during. Still <laughs> you didn't have much out. luck with Bathursts in that early era because you were at the 99 Super Touring one, as yeah, we recently discussed. Yeah, that was not discussed. long before that and still was drying out from that one to go to the next one in 2000. Uh, 01 was a little bit better, though. It, it still rained. Itself up. It did, but not as bad as 2000. Um but in 2000, remember, this was the year that Russell Ingle fired a broadside during a press conference being upset with the level of – of course, it was still a 55-car grid. Back then, it was all the main championship drivers, and then a bunch of cars from the Konica series were 
in essence, what we'd call wild cards now, but mm. they were added to the field to make a, a capacity field. And Russell described uh, some of these other privateers and slow drivers as being from, quote, Planet Mork. Yes. Which got lots of attention, and he ended up getting fined out of all that, didn't he? Got fined a sizable amount. I can't remember what the exact number was, but it was in the. It was. I think the original fine was something like ten thousand for bringing it's the in sport the database into disrepute. I'm sure of it. Oh, surely. I think Bath Russell's two thousand reason yeah. for a fine. Other. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> uh, here it is. Okay, so. In the end, Ingle received a $4,000 fine and was ordered to pay Cam's legal costs of $2,130 for comments that were deemed prejudicial to motorsport. But, right. o- but originally, the fine had been levied to Perkins Engineering, which was a $10,000 fine for bringing the sport into disrepute. For the Planet Mort comment? For the Planet Mort comment. Hmm. And it was subsequently appealed and the fine on Perkins Engineering was rescinded, but the one- that that so, Larry one got a fine point. transferred to Russell. Is that what you're trying to say? Because at that point, um, you could there was no mechanism to actually find a driver specifically for bringing the sport into disrepute. You could only find the team. All right. Well, so they, this, they changed that in the years to come they after sure that, didn't did. they? Because it yeah. was a regular thing in that 2000s era of V8 supercars of oh, bringing the sport into disrepute. It was a constant mm. thing, particularly in the mid-2000s, where it was- just over, over, over dramatized, used. overused, a good, and a good revenue racer. Yeah, it was over, over everything. And before, everything. and before anyone asks, we did look for the audio of um, Ingalls' comments, but um, have not it. been able to find it. Uh, one day, it'll one be day. around somewhere. We'll yeah, find a way to it. weave it into a, a pod somewhere. Now, speaking of the history of this car that started its life as the GIOVN, it kept going. You'd think by this time on the pod, this is the bit where we wrap it up and we say it's all done and dusted. But ah. Uh, no, no, no. It carries on. It carries on. 2001, it carries on. Steve Williams actually tried to qualify it for the Oran Park shell round in 01, but, oh, but yeah. didn't actually um, pre-qualify because there's a couple of cars trying to make it into the field that weekend. One of them was Matt Neal in that second Paul Morris Motorsport car that he pancaked at the at the final corner. Which is why he didn't make it into the field. Funnily enough, yeah. yeah. That, that that was a slight uh, barrier to getting into the race, the fact that the car had been bananaed. Yes. Uh, Richard Mork ran this car continually in the Konica series over the next couple of years. And then in 2004 in something called the V8 Touring Car Challenge, which a lot of our listeners might not remember, but it was basically a, a series that brought together XV, this is before the Kumo V8 Touring Car Series was created. Hey, so it was no third tier. No, at this no point. third tier. Brought together old V8 supercars. It brought together super tourers, future tourers, Group A cars, other oddities that kind of fit the the blend. And that so this car ran in that for a time with Mork at the helm, and then John Burke, a, a guy, raced it in that Touring Car Challenge Series as well in 2005. And so, so here we are, 14 years on from this car first racing as a VN in 1991, and it was still going at this point, albeit uh, in a very different look, in a very different series. But it, at its core, it's the same car mm. all the way through, which is which is quite stunning to have a car be at the top line of the sport. Okay, yeah, now it's starting to fall through the the categories down the line a little bit, but quite an amazing run. It was sold to a collector in 2008 who has had a long-term project to restore it to its VN Group A spec, predominantly how Wayne Gardner raced it mm. at Bathurst in 92. So that means changing it from a Watts link to a Panard bar rear end. Um, but we've seen some recent conversions 
of cars from supercar era back to VN Group A in uh, Jamie McDonald's product car, the VN mm. Commodore, which had been a supercar later on, and the Nathan Pretty uh, young bloke Cole Tyres car had been restored to VN Group A, how Alf Barbagallo had raced it in the early 90s as well. So there are some runs on the board for people doing that. Big project, big cost, big time to retro-convert those cars back uh, beyond the spec line from Group A to Group 3A or whatever Mm. you want to call it, V8 supercars. So that's the good news is that this car does survive. We do need to get a little bit of an update. The owner is a private collector whose identity we will not divulge or his location uh, we won't divulge either. But how good would that car – now, if you owned this car, Will, Mm -hmm. what are you putting it back to? What would you see this car's most prestigious livery and specification of how you would like to see it? For mine, it's it's probably the Crompton 93 – GIO, VP, big wings. Wayne Gardner headbutt car. The Wayne Gardner headbutt car, yes. <laughs> yeah. For, ma- for many different reasons. Like, it's a it's a good-looking car, good-looking livery. Um, I always had a soft spot for Crompton when I was growing up as a driver. So, yeah, all plays into it. So, one of the things I also think about, too, with these things is from a restoration point of view, it's kind of you're either all in or you're all out. You can't go halfway. You can't go – I don't feel you can put the – all right, I'm going to make it a VN, and I'm going to put the GIO livery on it. Yeah, but if the interior is not red, then it's not. You know, you've got to go all the way. Hmm. So I'm I'm going Gardner '92. I think yeah. it's it's that's its most known situation. Because the other thing is with the Crompton GIO stuff, there is that other car that Neil ran later in '93. So there were two cars hmm. that you could make the GIO Commodore VP. So I guess. It depends on if the person with the other car goes down that path with it or they do something else with theirs. Um, you would imagine that would that would go back to a Coke car. You'd think so, but yeah. you'd never know. Well, maybe the differentiating bit would be to Let's try and find Let's buy them both a- and then control it all. <laughs> well, yeah, we could do that. <laughs> or we could get the early VP body kit, the aero kit, the one that didn't work. Yeah. And put that on this car. Yeah, that didn't work for a reason because it wasn't that good. Not, yeah. not being run in a competitive sense anymore. No, that's true. Could be done. Could be done. So that is an amazing life of a very interesting car, and it's helped us touch point on a bunch of different parts of uh, Group A slash V8 supercar racing history along the way. The GIO Commodore VNVP, the Strathfield car, the V8 racing car, the slash slash VNVP, VR, VSV, everything. What a life. That is a pretty big race car life right there. It's amazing, like the ups and downs that that car's had. The fact that so late that so late in its um, Bathurst career, it had several high profile moments um, that weren't associated with being. And at no, at no point did this car go to Bathurst as an outright contender. No, no, at no point. No, and yet it still did. led a fascinating life. And it became a new part of the solar system when a new planet was discovered. <laughs> uh, planet Just beyond was- Pluto, isn't it? <laughs> Pluto is not a planet anymore, though, is it? Didn't they disqualify it as a planet over yeah, the years? Still, it's still Pluto. It's I know, not but a planet. I, think, but I don't think they call Pluto. it a planet anymore. I think they—they—it's like they rescinded its planet status somewhere along the line. I vaguely remember, but anyway, uh, solar systems are not our expertise here on the V8 Podcast. <laughs> no, powered by as evidenced by that little bit, there, as evidenced yeah. exactly by that little part there. Uh, no, something else. Today is great news as we drop this pod Wednesday, October the twentieth. Uh, fantastic news we have to tell you about. The National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama 
She's back open for business, baby. Yes. Doors back open. Uh, look forward to seeing as many people in there. Of course, there are uh, restrictions. There are things you need to do to be able to gain entry to the museum. We'd ask that you you respect those and you respect that those are in place for a reason because it allows them to open the doors. And if they don't open the doors, you can't see the cool stuff and it doesn't work for anybody. So great news with the museum being back open. Our great friends up there, uh, Brad Owen and his team, do a ripping job. They've moved some stuff around. There's been some stuff go, some stuff arriving. Uh, there's some cool exhibitions coming up as well, so jump on there. For all the opening times, go to the Museum's Bathurst website or the, the um, National Motor Racing Museum Facebook page to check out the uh, the days that they're open. Tuesdays, not open. Don't go on Tuesday. Doors mm. don't open. Just You can look at the museum. You can look at the outside, outside. but that's about as good as you're going to get there as well. Another quick plug, too, to our great mates at the Motorsport Trader. They're keeping your motorsport memories alive. A bunch of cool memorabilia. There's panels. There's all sorts of cool stuff on their website. Jump on and have a look. You might just find yourself something for your man cave or your she shed for uh, de- decorating the decorating the halls. It's it's leading up to Christmas. I'm getting into the, the festive spirit as well. So maybe it's a Christmas present or two that's a little bit different to what you would otherwise normally guess. That, that is how the Christmas carol goes. What is it? Deck the halls with boughs of bonnets. We've done it all. Solar System Christmas carols. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this classic car episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco, of course. We're on the pathway to the Repco Bathurst 1000. We've got a bunch of Bathurst content in the lead-up to the great race on the first weekend of December. Sounds very strange to say that, but we live in a strange world these times. So Bathurst in December, we'll take it. We'll take any Bathurst we can get. Hey, thanks, Will. Really appreciate going down memory lane with you. Uh, We'll see you on Planet Morphin other time soon. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Thanks again for listening, everybody. Please subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an app. Leave us a review. Send us through your questions through socials and, of course, through the v8sleuth.com.au website. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter because you'll get the latest and greatest from our site along the way. Thanks again for listening. We'll chat to you again, same time, same channel, next week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.